Okay. Good morning. Grab your Bibles. Uh, go to Galatians 2. We'll continue in Galatians. We'll pick up in verse 11 and plan to go through verse 14. Lord willing, this morning. And I believe most of us have been here through Galatians. But just to quickly, in one paragraph or so, recap what's going on. Remember, Paul taught the Galatians, planted churches there. Then men came in and tricked the Galatians into believing something different than what Paul Paul taught. They said Paul didn't know what he was talking about. He didn't have the authority. He wasn't qualified to talk about these things. His message was wrong. Jesus is good, but you still need the law. You still should be circumcised. You should follow the dietary restrictions. Observe this day, etc. And sadly, the Galatians started believing these men, and so they started believing a false gospel. But Paul is a spiritual father to the Galatians, and he doesn't want them to become captive to this false gospel. And so he's writing to them to convince them that what they've heard is wrong and what he has taught is right. And he's giving a defense of his ministry. As we saw in chapter 1, first Paul defends that his message, he defends his message by saying this message that he has, the gospel that he has, is from Jesus himself. So that's one reason you should believe it. And then secondly, he tells us that he finally made it up in Jerusalem. This is the beginning of chapter 2. And he talked to those who were influential. And they heard his message. And they didn't tell Paul that his message was wrong. In fact, they commended him for his work. And they encouraged him to continue and to go to the Gentiles and to preach the gospel and to remember the poor. And now today we see that Paul gives another defense for his ministry and the gospel and why his message is good and true and why it has authority. So let's read our passage. But before I do, let me pray and ask God to bless the reading of his word. Holy Father, your word is good and true, and it teaches us how we should think, and it teaches us how we should act. And we ask for help this morning as we read your word We do desire to grow. We don't just want to hear a sermon and feel good that we attended church. We do want to be more like Jesus. Bless the households in this church this morning and give us a desire to grow. Give us understanding that can only come from your spirit. And we ask for mercy in this way. Amen. Galatians 2, starting in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul gives his third defense of his gospel message here, and he begins by talking about Cephas. Cephas is another name for Peter. This is the Apostle Peter, the same man that walked with Jesus. He was incredibly influential in the early church, as most of you know. And he came to Antioch, and it doesn't uh, tell us exactly when this was, but given the context of what's discussed here, it's sometimes between Acts 10 and Acts 15. Acts 15 is when they made the formal ruling of 
Gentiles, do the Gentiles need to be circumcised? That's Acts 15, and we'll talk about Acts 10 here in a moment. But Peter is in Antioch, and so is Paul, and Paul opposes Peter to his face because he stood condemned. Another way to translate that he stood condemned is to say he was worthy of blame. He was acting in a way that was worthy of blame, and he stood condemned in his actions. And so the obvious question when you first come upon this verse is, what did Peter do that made him worthy of blame so bad that Paul had to confront him and oppose him so strongly? Well, verse 12 continues, and it says, Before before certain men came from James. Now, we don't know why these men came from James, but these men are different than the false brothers that slipped in that we read about in Galatians 2.4. These are not false brothers, but something happens when these men come from James. Verse 12 continues, and it tells us that before these men arrived, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. He had no problem eating a meal with the Gentile Christians who were uncircumcised and who didn't follow the same customs as the Jews. This would have been a great act of unity because these different groups in these churches, they wouldn't have always been able to share meals together because Jewish Christians may not have been able to eat what the Gentiles were eating or the Gentiles may not have been observing what the Jews were observing. But Peter, in his love for the Gentiles, was eating with them. But then these men arrive, and it says Peter drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So before these men arrive, Jesus, or Paul, excuse me, Peter is eating with the Gentiles, welcomes them, shares bread with them. These men arrive, and out of fear, he draws back, and he starts separating himself from these Gentile Christians. And Paul doesn't tell us what it is about these men and their presence that makes Peter draw back and separate himself, besides that it was fear that led the decision. And because he let his fear lead him, he began acting in a way that was contrary to the gospel. Look at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So Peter, being the influential leader that he is, he starts acting hypocritically. The rest of the Jews follow him. They start acting hypocritically along with him. And presumably, presumably those in Antioch were unified with the Gentile believers before this time because it says they they started to act hypocritically. Along with Peter. Peter starts and, and they start as well. And even Barnabas, a very godly man, was led astray so that he too was acting hypocritically. Now, Peter is acting hypocritically because Peter knows better. We know Peter knows better because in Acts 10, Peter has a vision. And you can read about it yourself, but I'll summarize it quickly for us this morning. In Acts 10, Peter goes up on a rooftop to pray. He has a vision. The heavens open up and a sheet falls upon the earth. And there's all sorts of animals. There's reptiles, there's birds. And this voice comes to Peter. And it says, rise, kill and eat. But, but Peter tells this voice, by no means, Lord. For I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. So there's these animals that he as a Jew is not allowed to eat on this sheet. His voice says, rise, kill and eat. And he says, no, I've never eaten this. I've never eaten anything unclean or common. 
But this voice comes again and says, What God has made clean, do not call common. And this happens three times. So Peter has this vision. He's confused initially about what it is, but God directs him to meet a man named Cornelius who is not a Jew. And then he realizes this vision is God telling him that those who were once considered unclean are now welcome into the kingdom of God. So Peter says that God shows no partiality between the nations, and now he gives this short sermon, and the Holy Spirit descends not just on the Jews that are there, but also on the Gentiles that are there. And so Peter knows well that the Gentiles are now welcomed into the kingdom of God. The good news is for the Jews and Gentiles. But here, this, here these men come from James, and, and Peter starts acting hypocritically and leading others astray. Now, I want to take a break for a moment from the text and just give some pastoral warnings to our church. I want you to be on guard of how much you desire to please men and how much you fear them. And we talk about this often, but be aware how easily it can overtake you. Peter fell into it, and you're not better than Peter. There's a reason that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, because you... Because what you fear is often what you obey. And I think this is really important, and I want you to listen closely. It's easy to think that you're so solid on the gospel, you're so solid on the gospel message, that you wouldn't mess it up. You wouldn't become compromised. I mean, how could you get the gospel compromised? Many of you have heard it for decades. It's basic. It's easy to read this passage and think that what happened to Peter, it wouldn't happen to you because you've heard this message for so long. How could you get this messed up? You know you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But stop thinking like that. How many of you have friends who seemed solid in the faith years ago, but now either don't believe or believe something that's really off? They weren't like that years ago, but now they are. Do you really think that you're so much smarter or so much godlier than them, and that's what's kept you from going astray? Do you think you're that much better than Peter, that you would never be compromised like him? Do not fool yourself. Don't think... I would never be compromised like that. At least not on that, something that basic. Maybe I would be led astray on something else. Maybe my fear would make me compromise on something, but not the gospel message. I know it's easy to think that. Because it wasn't even until I read this all week. It wasn't even until yesterday evening that I realized I need to be on guard myself that I don't become compromised about the gospel. I was doing the same thing, of just thinking, I would never get that wrong. I might, fear might make me do other things, but it wouldn't make me get the gospel wrong. And it's foolish to not take the warning from Peter seriously. Peter's fear led him to abandon what he knew to be true. It hurt other people, it led them astray, and you or I could very well out of our fear, go astray as well if we're not careful.
Now, there are many other ways that this can happen too, right? Most of us are not Jewish. I don't know of any of us that are. We're likely not going to be tempted to think that people need to be circumcised, like the Galatians, or that you know, our church needs to start following the Old Testament dietary laws. That's likely not how it's going to show up in our church. Maybe in the past it was Christians who danced or drank alcohol or went to the movies, and you'd separate yourself because those aren't the real Christians. You're serious about your holiness. Maybe it's those, though, that you know, don't treat their bodies as well as you treat your bodies, and they don't eat as healthy as you think Christians should eat because your body is a temple. So they're not serious Christians. Men at work, you especially need to be on guard that you don't compromise yourselves. Now, I know we live and we work. You work among many unbelievers. There's a difference between you're working around unbelievers and you hear vulgar language or you hear people say things that are inappropriate. There's no way to avoid that with the world that we live in. I understand that. I'm not talking about that. But be careful that you don't get duped in approving things that God despises just to please men. Now, probably the most common thing for the men in our church that work at places is going to be giving approval to whatever sexual deviancy is being celebrated at the moment by our culture. And out of fear, be careful that you don't let others, you don't compromise yourself and start living in a way that's contrary to God's truth out of the fear of not the circumcision party, but maybe the LGBT party or the board of directors party at your work. All I want for you, church, is to be humble and to ask God to help you not let your fear lead you astray from the truth and the truth of the gospel. If we can do that, we'll be in a good spot. Let's keep going back to our passage. Peter, he's drawn back from the Gentiles, even though he knows better because of this vision that God gave him. And others are following him. And so what does Paul do? Look at verse verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. So this is before everybody, okay? He's confronting Peter, not privately, before everybody. He says, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So Paul publicly, before everyone, he confronts Peter in his sin. And this is actually his third defense of his gospel message to the Galatians, of why it's true. He, he's telling the Galatians, I even went to Peter, I rebuked Peter before everybody, that he was not living in step with the gospel. He, he corrects Peter and to start living back in line with the very message that Paul is teaching the Galatians, and Peter listens to him. Peter doesn't tell, no, that's, that's, you're wrong. And we know this because of Acts 15. Now, a quick note on confronting sin. I can see some overly zealous or a pious person maybe say, you know, Paul shouldn't have addressed Peter like that. You shouldn't have addressed him so publicly. I mean, Paul even says later in Galatians 6, 
that you who are spiritual should, if somebody's caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore that person in a spirit of gentleness. And that didn't seem very gentle. And Jesus himself, he says in Matthew 18, that if a brother sins against you, you should go to him directly, go to him first, and then tell him his faults and hopes to win it over. And then if he doesn't listen to you, then you can take a group of people and go talk to him. And then if he doesn't listen to that group, then you can do it in front of everybody else. But Paul isn't doing any of that. He's going directly to Peter, and he confronts him, and he corrects him in front of everybody. It's not always the case that you follow Matthew 18. And we know that from this verse, and we know that from others here in a moment. Public sin often needs public rebuke. There are various times when the Matthew 18 model is not followed in Scripture. You know, Paul talks about, and Timothy, when he's writing to Timothy, when he talks about elders who are in sin, he says, rebuke them in the presence of all. So that, they, so that the rest may stand in fear. It's 1 Timothy 5.20. And also there's many times in the Bible where those who are teaching false doctrines are corrected before others and publicly. Paul knows that if he doesn't correct these, this publicly in front of everyone, that many people are going to be led astray. And it makes sense that Paul would rebuke them rebuke Peter before them all because so many of them were also doing the very same thing that Peter was doing, right? They were all acting hypocritically. They all needed this rebuke. Something that's good for us to learn as a church that'll help us not be snobs about this so we don't say, well, he should have done Matthew 18. You know, I don't think anybody in our church would probably say that. But there's other ways that we can be snobs. There's other ways that we hold tight to our principles that we feel are biblically informed and we never let them bend or break in any circumstance. And we hold them so tightly and we think we're, we're acting so godly because we're holding so firm to these principles but then we can never let them flex at all and so then we end up causing more pain or hurt or not helping somebody or lacking love. Right, this is what the Pharisees were doing when they had such a hard time with Jesus healing on the Sabbath. Right, they had this principle that they felt was biblically informed and they couldn't let Jesus break it at all. Paul didn't talk to Peter publicly and he did what maybe a pious person thinks they should have done and gone to him privately. There's a good chance that many people are still led astray and others are hurt. So yes, good, you didn't compromise on your principle, you kept with Matthew 18, but lots of other people still were drawing back from the Gentiles. And this is a temptation for us more than we realize as I said, the Pharisees were already like this with Jesus healing on the Sabbath. But this happens for us all the time. And you see it everywhere if you'll just open your eyes to it. We have principles that are good principles. 
I'm not saying they're bad principles or you shouldn't hold them. But if you hold them so strongly and so tightly that you can never flex on them, you're going to hurt people. You see it when you see people on social media talk about homeschooling. They have a principle that you should homeschool your children. It's good. You should be convinced that homeschooling is best for your family if you do it. Okay? I'm not opposed for you feeling convinced about that. That's great. But you cannot make it a law that any parent who has their kid in public school just hates their kid or just wants them to fall to whatever the culture is following. Because what you end up doing is you end up crushing the single mother who isn't ever going to have the opportunity to homeschool their child because of the situation that she's in. You saw it with Christians in masks. I saw a man asking for advice on what questions to ask a church when you're looking for a new church. And one of the biggest things that people were talking about was ask them if they ever asked people to wear masks during the COVID season. And if they didn't wear, if they wore masks, they would not go to that church. Now, I'm not opposed for somebody saying I'm never wearing a mask and and being very confident about it. But if that's your standard, that's your principle for how you're going to decide about what's a godly church, you're a fool. You can ask that question, and you can ask for the motivations or the reasons behind it. But there's a very good chance that you could end up at a worse church for your family that didn't wear masks because you made this your principle instead of going and having some flex with maybe there's churches that ask people to wear masks that are good churches. Does the church allow coffee in the sanctuary? If not, I won't go there. You know, there's principles, all sorts of principles that we have. In college, I knew of a girl from my old church she was probably five to ten years older than me. I don't know exactly. But she was married at the time when I was in college. But I was at this church, so it had to have been late college. And sadly, their child died. Their only son died within the first year of his life. And as you would expect, she was heartbroken. And I remember reading a post from her on social media where she said that she hadn't been back to church for six months since her son died. And I remember judging her so harshly. So harshly, thinking if she really wanted to get over her loss, why wouldn't she go back to church? There's people that care for her there. Why would her and her husband forsake going back to church? Had all these reasons why they would be helped at church. They should get there. That's, why would she do that? She's just prolonging her hurt. Well, it came out not too much longer that her and her husband were getting divorced because over the course of her relatively short marriage, 
Not only had they lost their son, but uh, this man who professed Christ was committing egregious adultery against his wife multiple times. And so here you have this woman uh, whose husband has destroyed her with his sin. And I'm judging this person from the other side of the computer screen, not knowing what's going on, not understanding, not having any sympathy towards why it might be hard for her to go to church, not thinking that it might be hard for her to go to church, that her church might not be doing anything for, against her husband's sin and helping and protecting her. But I have my principle that she should go to church. And a Christian shouldn't be ever away from church that long. But we do this in many ways, whether you see it or not. So small group leaders, I would encourage you this week during small group to talk about what are principles that we sometimes hold too tightly that we don't flex on ever at the expense of others what we hold too tightly that we can't bend or anything and it comes at the expense of love and wisdom. And I think that'll be a good discussion. We talked about that a while ago, maybe a month ago in our small group. Remember, these things aren't bad things to hold, hold to. It's not bad to think that a person should go to church. It's not bad to think that homeschooling is the right way to school your children. It's not bad to think that you shouldn't wear masks. It's not bad to think a church shouldn't have coffee. In the sanctuary, that's your personal principle, that's fine. But if you hold them and you can't flex on these things and you make them laws, that's when we get into trouble. But back to confronting Peter before all. Paul does this to protect everybody involved. Yes, he doesn't follow Matthew 18, but he does what is good and wise. And a public rebuke is needed because the truth of the gospel was was at stake. And so you can imagine it was probably pretty awkward to hear this confrontation. This is in front of everybody. So you shouldn't be surprised if you hear something like this at church. There may come times when someone preaches here at our church and someone says something so bad that one of your pastors gets up at the end of the sermon and, and corrects it before everybody awkwardly while this person is just set down by giving us their time. And it may have been out of ignorance. It may have just been a mistake. Or it may just be something that they believed that we didn't know they believed when we asked them to come preach that we have to correct. But either way, it wouldn't be surprising to me that someday that we would have to correct somebody or something about a sermon. And maybe even one of your own pastors. Maybe I would say something. And Esteban or Paul or Chris or Josh would have to get up and and correct something. So pray for your elders. Most of us take it for granted that our elders won't slide doctrinally. And while I believe our elders are godly men, that shouldn't keep you from praying that God would direct our church and to keep us pure. Remember, if Peter can go astray and lose sight of this, none of your elders are better than Peter. If you read Revelation, you'll read the letters to the churches, and you'll see the churches, and they have weaknesses, right? They have strengths. They have weaknesses, but we need to pray for our church, for our weaknesses. So to wrap things up this morning, remember this is Paul's defense to the Galatians. He's preaching to them to teach them that his gospel, the one that he taught them, is the pure gospel. He's trying to convince them that the false gospel that they heard, they shouldn't be listening to.
This is Paul's third defense. And you should remember that you are not better than Peter. So you should heed the warning to not let the fear of other men lead you to forsake the gospel. So many of my friends, the reason that they've left the faith is it was pressure from the culture of whatever old-fashioned belief they felt like the church was holding on to, and the culture would tell them that this is some old-fashioned belief. And, and so they would compromise here on this, and they compromised on this, and, they comp- and then soon they just left the gospel altogether. Don't assume or think that you're better than any of them and that you wouldn't fall subject to that. Don't hold through principles so tightly that when love requires them to bend or flex that you are so unable to do so that you end up being like the Pharisees and rather wishing that Jesus wouldn't help heal this person on the Sabbath and this person would remain in pain at least for one more day. It's foolishness. Don't be like that. And don't be surprised by public rebuke. Maybe even yourself having to public rebuke something or correct something at Thanksgiving dinner with your family. Or your son at the dinner table. Sometimes rebuke needs to be public because the sin is public and not correcting it before everybody would harm everyone. Okay? Let's pray. Stand with me for prayer. Heavenly Father, help us believe the truth of the gospel and to not forsake it or to start walking out of line with the truth of the gospel. Father, forgive us for the pride that we came in here with that we would think that we would never, we would never go off rails about the gospel truth. Maybe something else, but, but never the gospel message. Father, protect this church. Protect us to continue to believe your truth. And correct us in our weaknesses, and especially when we sway from the truth. Father, help us never do so, but if we do so, would you quickly correct and bring us back on track? Forgive us for holding on to our principles so tightly that we end up acting like Pharisees and not loving others. Thank you for the rebukes that you've given us over the years. The rebukes privately, the rebukes through sermons, and public rebukes when we need them. We ask you to continue to care for us, and we ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.